to do things for people. My job is to get alongside you, see where Jesus is doing things, and then say, wow, look what Jesus is already doing. Um, and so I, I say that by way of broad preamble to say that at the end today, I'm going to invite you to come forward in prayer to let the Spirit this is already doing in you. And that as, you, as your minds roam and wander while I speak, um, as you think about today's lunch or tomorrow's recipes or the work of the week and what's going to happen, um, if at some point the Spirit nudges you to say, hey, this is going on in your life, and you need to keep note of that so you can come forward and be sealed in prayer for what God is already doing in you, all right? So that's the deal. I, I, we're not, we don't manipulate by the Spirit. We let Him do His work, and then we come alongside and say, wow, look what God did, and then He looks awesome, which is cool, all right? Uh, I'm going to show you a picture of today's, one of the day's great prophets and uh, figures who knows a lot about the world. Can we go prophetic picture for a moment? No. Uh, there we are. There we are. Homer, the end is near, but is it? Let's read Acts and find out. Uh, we're going to read today Acts uh, chapter, last week Jesse preached on uh, the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. And we're going to read or reread that passage as context and then move a few verses forward. So we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It's my fault for putting, I made things complex, so don't, don't blame anybody but me. Those parrots, is Jesus at work in them too? <laughs> like a parrot. Jesus says. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> time to obey. <laughs> Phil. Imagine what will come out of my mouth if the delay goes on. We should hurry. Things could become brilliant. Uh, I'm going to read this for us now. You can follow along on the screen or on your Bibles if you have them. So, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, aka country bumpkins? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome? Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Hey, they've been throwing back the bottle. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, about 9 a.m., but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the, new, in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that's our text for today. We're just looking at those. We, we reread the Pentecost descent of the Spirit, but now we're talking about Peter's the opening of his sermon. And really, we're in the middle of a kind of three-part event. Descent of the Spirit last week, Peter's explanatory sermon, part one today, and the remainder of Peter's sermon will be next week. Now, at the end of Peter's sermon, the end result, this is Acts 2.37, says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter preaches this sermon, and the crowd, about 3,000 people, are cut to the heart. They're grieved. They're struck by what he says. And we want to unpack why it is that they're struck by what he says. And we're going to look specifically at the quote from Joel, which Peter uses to explain the phenomena of tongues witnessed by the crowd. We're going to do this in two broad parts. We're going to interpret the text, and then we're going to give some implications for it. Uh, And so here we go. Interpretation. Uh, Actually, it's not just one sign that interprets the event. It's two parts. So we looked at Acts 2, 17 and 18. There's this first part. In the last days, the Spirit comes down. This descent of the Spirit is one sign that, highlight, that Peter highlights. And the second part, which is verses 19 through 21 that we read just a moment ago, highlights astron- astronomical signs, things happening in the heavens. Now, both events are marked by Peter as marks of fulfillment. More specifically, both tell us, according to Peter, that we are now in the end times. The end times have come. How is this possible? We have to take each event in turn. So first, the tongues. Uh, Jesse talked about this last week wonderfully. Uh, They're together praying in an upper room. There's a hundred so people. The Spirit descends, and they begin speaking in other languages for the sake of communicating the gospel. So uh, these Galileans, um, I don't speak Swahili, but it's like God downloads the gospel in Swahili in my mouth, and someone here who understands Swahili says, wow, I'm hearing the gospel in my own language. And so tongues are given that first time specifically for the communication of the gospel. That's why it descends, okay? And why is this a sign of the end times? That's a good question. A couple reasons. First, because the pouring out of the Spirit is prophesied by Joel, and it happened. Joel reads, in the the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on all people, and he makes it kind of explicit. It's not special people. It's not awesome people. It's not genetically modified people. It's not male people, it's not female people, not uniquely mature people, it's all people. And here, in living witness of the crowd, the Spirit has been poured out for the benefit of all nations in this way. And so there's this expansive gift. So, what's the second reason for why this is? Actually, because of the Tower of Babel. Do you guys remember your Genesis 11? Uh, The people of the earth get together, and they're going to build a tower to rival God. This is what they say. They've got one language. And there's a little joke in the text. It says that God from the earth said, what are you doing? So they're trying to build up to God, but God's already on the ground. So they've, they've, they've got a bad sense of where God is. They don't understand things properly. And so his punishment against them is to divide their tongues and confuse them. And so in Genesis, it's part of this ordering story of how all these multiplicity of languages come. But in in Peter's mind and in Pentecost and certainly in the New Testament, something special has just happened, which is that now this division of humanity is being overcome by the pouring out of the Spirit. And at Pentecost, the Spirit undoes the Babel curse. 
So we are made one as a people, supernaturally, not in a way that abolishes our differences, but one in which the power of God personally fills the gaps that separate us. That's so important that I'm going to say it again. We are made one supernaturally, not in a way that abolishes our differences. The oneness of the Spirit doesn't wipe out, doesn't make us all the same. It keeps us unique, but it supersedes those differences by a personal invasion of who God is. And so he makes up the difference. We are one in the Spirit. We're not one in spite of the Spirit. We're not one in spite of ourselves. We become one and we still are ourselves. Now this new unity is, for Peter, a profound sign of the new order of the world. And in his view, God is unmaking curses all over the place. Jesus came back from the dead. That's the, that's the curse of death, undone. People start speaking in, uh, speak in tongues. That's the curse of Babel, undone. Look at the stuff God's doing. And he's justifiably really excited that he gets to witness these things. And so he interprets them by means of Joel. So there we have the sign of tongues. The crowd has witnessed the tongues. Peter says, look, Joel said it was going to happen. we got this Babel stuff in the background. God's doing this new uh, curse unveiling, a curse undoing work among us. Boom. Second sign, astronomical. It's a frequently repeated phrase in both the Old and New Testaments that a visible marker of God's arrival for the last days is this phrase about the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, and the stars falling from the sky. Uh, you'll find it in Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Jesus himself talks about it several times, uh, once especially in Matthew's gospel. Uh, you can check it out, Matthew 24, where he goes on and on about the end times for a while. So it's fair to ask this question. Is this a thing that's happened? Is it something that we're looking to happen still? Okay. Has this already happened, or are we looking to happen still? Are we waiting now for imminent darkness, blood moons, and catastrophic astral death? I like that sentence, catastrophic astral death. Hmm. I think the answer is no. And I think we must keep in mind, chiefly, is that for Peter, it appears that this is a thing that has already happened. Peter's identifying for the crowd things they're seeing right now. You just witnessed tongues, let me explain it. And then he talks about sun, moon, and stars. I think they've seen something already. And if we think back, a couple explanations help. Just making sure I got all the scriptures written down. That's good. A couple explanations help. Now, there's a real, the real danger that I'm about to lose you in the next four minutes. If I lose you, that's okay. You don't have to believe anything I say in the next four minutes. And you can just edit that out if that's what you like. But let's talk about it for a moment. There's something funny that happens when the Bible talks about astronomical science. And I think the Bible has something much more specific in mind. And for a moment, we're going to consider the Genesis account of creation very briefly. Uh, a lot of what I'm saying is going to come from a book named The Lost World of Genesis 1 by a guy named John Walton. It's a fantastic book that sets the Genesis account in its ancient Near Eastern context. And he's seen some things that are pretty cool. So uh, we're going to put some uh, pictures up. Picture number Juan. One. One. <laughs> oh, that's not one. That's not one. That's not one. That's... That's two. That was two. One is on the left. That's three. That's one. Brilliant. Okay, this may work, this may not work. If we go, we may go out of order, which is not a big deal. The reveal isn't that exciting. <laughs> so, okay, in Genesis 1, we get two sets of three days, and this is what's interesting. Um, typically, we read this in terms of like a straight progression, one through seven, seven being the Sabbath day, uh, but what, what uh, John 
um, Walton has noticed this actually, there's, there's a pairing of days one, two, three with day four, five, and six. So day one, we're creation of light, and there's periods of light and darkness. And he thinks this is actually the creation of time itself, how you govern basic time. Uh, and this will become clearer in a moment. Day two is vertical space. So it separates the waters above from the waters below. In Hebrew cosmology, um, there's this, don't worry too much about this, there's this bronze bowl called the firmament, and above that is waters. So there's waters above and waters below is how it's conceived in that way. And then day three is horizontal space. So there's a, there's a creation of this, um, this, this horizontal. So you get day one, time, day two, the vertical, day three, the horizontal. So this becomes even clearer when you realize that the second set of three days populate those spaces. So day four, ta-da, sun, moon, and stars. They fill the light and the darkness. We're going to come back to the significance in just a minute. Day five is filling the vert. No! Ah! (laughs) That's it. Day six. Just put them all up. It's okay. Just go to... Ah! (laughs) Okay. That's great. Okay. Uh, Day... No! (laughs) Freeze! Freeze! Okay. Day two is paired with day five. No! (laughs) Okay. Um... The vertical space is the, 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 the stuff above and the stuff below. What's created on day five are birds and fish. Birds fill the heavens, fish fill the sea. And so there's a population, the filling of vertical space. And la- ah, lastly, on day, you're good, you're doing great. Day three is this horizontal space. What's created is animals and people. And so God fills on the second four days the spaces he's created in the first three days. There's a parallel between them. And that's fascinating. And then the crowning glory, of course, is day six, is the animals and people, uh, mankind is created as the governor of all these things. And on day four, um, the sun, moon, and stars are the governances of time. Go ahead and just, you can go back to the other stuff, because I think it's going to, it just wants to go away. And Homer's going to come back any second. So here's the thing you have to keep, to keep in mind, is that, here's the thing you have to keep in mind. Um, for, for the ancient world, not just the Hebrews, for every ancient world, the sun told you the day, and the moon told you the month. They're all lunar calendars. Our word month comes from moon. It's moons, right? And the stars told you what season it was. Based on, based on which stars were in the sky, you knew the season. So these are the three ways you tell what time it is, sun, moon, and stars, and they populate the space. And so in the Hebrew mind, when the sun goes dark and the moon turns to blood and the stars are wiped out of the sky, there's something of creation going on here. I don't necessarily think we're looking for like broad astronomical events. We're saying that there's a, there's a new creation event that's going to happen in our witness. And I think Peter thinks this has happened, specifically with the darkness during the crucifixion of Christ. So Luke 23, 44 and 5 says that while Christ is on the, on the cross from the third to the sixth hour, third to the ninth, the third to the sixth hour, um, third, excuse, thank you for the whole land, sixth to ninth hour. I knew it was a multiple of three. So um, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, it, we've got all sorts of explanations for things like, you know, solar eclipses and fun things. There was no solar eclipse at this time in history. Um, We've got all sorts of things, but when when you live by the sun and the sun tells you the time, if it goes dark, that's not fun. That's absolutely terrifying, and you don't forget it. And so in living memory, this crowd has witnessed A, 
the Spirit descending and people speaking in tongues. B, the sun going dark in the sky. And Peter says, guess what? I can tell you what's happened. Joel explains both. And this means the end times have arrived. I think this is why Peter chooses this particular passage to explain what's going on. So this suggests, first, that certainly in Peter's mind, the prophecies about darkening sun, moon, and stars were fulfilled at the crucifixion. They aren't things that we're waiting for. They've already happened. And it suggests further that if the sun, moon, and stars mark how we think about time, then the death and resurrection of Jesus inaugurate the new order of creation. It's new creation. John makes this explicit. This is the new creation we've been talking about. And so from the days of resurrection, Pentecost forward, we are in the new world, newly created, where time is not governed by the old order, but by the work of Jesus. And that's a pretty big claim to make, that now time is marked by Jesus. But I think we hold this up. Okay, that's the four minutes that you can, you can ignore if you need to, and, uh, but I think it's true, and you can talk to me about it later if you've got complaints. So, why does Peter quote from Joel? Let's talk for a minute about the theology of Joel. Uh, like I've said, the crowds witnessed two public signs, one astronomical, the other spiritual. Peter is interpreting those signs by means of the text of Joel, and it's fair to ask what Joel is about, and what does it mean for Peter to draw from this text? Well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is Joel is short. It's only three chapters. So you can read it today, this afternoon, and spend a few minutes with it. It won't take you long at all. I read it again this morning. It was lovely. The bad news, Joel is all about judgment. Uh, it's not a fun read. It's not, you're going to read it and be like, oh, I'm so glad God loves me. It's kind of like, oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, and so, um, so it's good. So, and, and Joel's judgment actually takes three forms. And I want to talk about the three forms of judgment that Joel has. The first judgment in Joel is a plague of locusts. Uh, he's describing a, a plague. Did Joel actually witness a plague? Is he describing what he's seen? Is he predicting a plague? We don't know. We just know that he's writing about this plague of locusts. There's hordes of the creatures. They're scaling walls. They're marching in formation. They're a company so vast that they block out the sun, moon, and stars. Okay? So, so I don't know if you've ever seen this, but like, if you've ever seen enough bugs to make the sun go dark, that's kind of terrifying too, isn't it? Um, and if you ever have, like, you know, um, if you've been in a place where there's forest fires and bits of smog or cloud obscure the moon, what happens? It turns red, doesn't it? Um, and, and you have clouds that move between you and the stars, and you can't see things anymore. So it sounds like there's actually some natural stuff that's in the background here as well. Now, the locusts and Joel consume all the food, wealth, the land, and they threaten all the livelihood of the people. It's a terrible, terrible plague. So that's the first judgment, this plague of locusts, and people are, people are crying out to God for help. The second judgment, um, it seems like Joel also speaks about an invading northern army. Uh, could it be Assyria? We don't know. We don't really have times and dates for when Joel was writing, and that's fine. The army is envisioned as coming with judgment. It's a foreign army, but ironically, it's God's judgment. The army destroys Israel, and it unveils a prototype of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is this great and promised day of God's visitation on his people and the world. Um, it's really, it's, excuse me, it's not really good news for anybody unless you're really sure that you're on God's side. Like really, really, really sure that you're on God's side. Uh, and this may be one of the key errors the Pharisees make, is that they're pretty confident they're on God's side. And God shows up and says, no, you ain't. Um, and so the day of the Lord comes and they're on the outside, and that's terrifying. Now on Joel's account, the northern army locusts are the embodiment of God's judgment on Israel for its apostasy. So however you cut the cake, um, this locusts have come through or this army is going to come through and they're wiping out people's livelihood and Joel says, this is God's judgment on you for not having the right heart for God. Deal with it. 
Third set of judgment is that Joel speaks about the actual day of the Lord. So this is the ultimate return of God to bless his people again after the judgment, the plague, the destruction. Now at this final judgment, God will not only destroy his and our enemies, but will pour out his spirit like rain on all people, a blessing of restoration to follow the destruction, and specifically in response to the repentance of God's people. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. He wants you to have the right heart before God. Repentance is crucial. Um, Briefly, what time is it? Yeah, we got time. Let's look at three brief passages from Joel now. So let's do Joel 1, uh, 14 and 15, just to give you a sampling of this. You could read these later. They're great. Uh, God speaking, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So there's this coming day, alas, repent, come together, pull a fast off, all right? Uh, Joel 2, 11 through 13 is the next passage we'll look at. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. His camp of the enemy army, his camp of locusts, his camp of angelic warriors, it's, it's possibly just intentionally vague, and that's fine. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Nobody. It wasn't rhetorical. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and who relents over disaster. So if you repent, we'll make a way, he says. And lastly, uh, Joel 3, 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land. Now, this is a, this is a lovely irony here. So I'm going to gather the nations, and we could, we could read foreshortened way and say, oh, Pentecost, the gathering of the nations. And you go on and you realize, I'm gathering the nations so I can pass judgment on them. Um, and so it's, again, they are the Lord, bad news, bad news, unless there is repentance. And that's the key thing that, that uh, both Joel and Peter call us to. So what are the implications of all this stuff? I've given you a ton of information. I'll try and summarize it in some implications for you now. Well, the first implication is this. Welcome to the end times. Homer's wrong. The end is not near. The end is here. The end has been here since about A.D. 33 at the crucifixion and Pentecost. That's it. End times began that day. They've been lasting for the last 2,000 years. Deal with it. Okay? And that's part of the beginning of this. That time is now. They've been here. Nothing's going to change in that sense. Uh, There's so much to say about living together in the end times. I'm going to limit myself to just a few things about what this might mean for us, salient to our passage. Uh, One of the features of the end times is that apparently the rules of the Spirit have changed. Now, when you read the Old Testament previously, the Spirit seems to land on like one person at a time. It's on Saul, or it's on David, or it's on like kind of a group of prophets, or Elijah and Elisha. And there's this great story in 2 Kings where the Spirit's on Elisha and he dies, and then some guy's body gets thrown into a pit, and the Spirit's still there with Elijah, right? Like he just hung out with his bones. It's weird. It's great. Look it up sometime, and you'll have a chuckle to yourself. What's going on? All right? He hangs out at a temple. He does things. He's in one place at a time. But at Pentecost, he comes out to all people. Okay? And so previously it was the king. Now it's the king and the serving girl. Previously it was just the prophet. Now it's the prophet and uh, his, his bellhop. 
right? And so the Spirit is passed among people in a, in a radically different way. And this is the end times, and so the rules of the Spirit have, in some degrees, changed according to God's plan. He says he's going to do it in Joel. Now, part of these changing rules are tied uh, to the nature of prophecy. I just want to talk about prophecy for a moment. Uh, many of you have an idea of prophecy that is more informed by Madame Trelawney than the Bible. Okay? Those of you who have not read your Harry Potter, you can go back and check on this later. So she sits up straight, she gets possessed, and then she speaks the future in this quavery voice. He is returned. Right, where is it going to be? Right? She's no longer herself. Something funny goes on. But, as we've seen in Peter's prophetic speech in Acts today, um, in prophecy in the Bible, more often than not, is simply speaking the truth about God's ways to the world. Speaking the truth about God's ways to the world. And God's ways don't really change towards the world. I'm saying... I say to Phil, God's going to judge you. That's kind of like, well, duh. We all knew that. He's going to judge me too. Uh, but maybe, maybe Phil needed to hear that today for some reason. I, that's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. It can be an interpretation or a speaking into, a giving of life by means of godly words to difficult circumstances. Prophecy means speaking God's unchanging character into ever-changing circumstances. And this is an office that is now distributed throughout the church. And this is a change, that we've been given something new by means of the Spirit. And so by that Spirit and in prophecy, living in the end times also means that we are privileged as Christians to have a fresh perspective on these times themselves. Because of the resurrection, because of what God's doing in these times, we ought to have a way of looking at the world and the world's events that effectively interprets them. A way of saying, this is what's going on. Now, we've got a special angle, and what this does not mean is that we get to predict the end of the world. And there is little that is more moronic in the Christian world than people saying, the blood moon is coming, it's the end times. Because Jesus said himself, nobody knows. Chill out, people. He, this is great. He says, I don't even know. And then some pastor in America is going to say, yes, but I know. <laughs> That's pretty stupid to say I know more than Jesus does. So we don't know. And that's not our prophetic privilege. This is not how we do things. All right? In fact, it's about the furthest thing from the prophetic call that we've inherited. The Spirit is upon us to speak the truth, to announce good news, to proclaim the power of the kingdom, never to inspire fear or show off. That's not why we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit to speak life. So, a couple more things to say, and we're almost done. What else can we say about the end times? If the Joel passage is to be believed, then in Christ's resurrection and the Spirit's arrival, we are encountering the day of the Lord firsthand. That's not good news, that the day of the Lord is here. Throughout the Old Testament, when the, when the day of the Lord happens, it's bad news. And so if the day of the Lord is here, and Peter says, hey, day of the Lord's arrived, this is, this is trembling news. This is not good news in that common sense. The day of the Lord is about judgment and about fear and reckoning. It's only good if you're on God's side already, and so the good news is double-edged. God's judgment is revealed at last, but the good side of it is that God's judgment is also delayed. There's a big fancy word for this. It's called inaugurated eschatology. Say that with me now. Inaugurated eschatology. Isn't that fun? It's not, if, you, or if you're in need of a new curse word, that would be a nice one for when you stub your toe. Inaugurated eschatology. You can kind of confuse your, your housemates and flatmates, all right? Uh, it's made famous by a theologian named George Eldon Ladd. Uh, he speaks about the already not yet nature of the kingdom, and he's right. 
And if you've never noticed this, when Jesus shows up preaching, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And when the apostles start preaching, they say, repent, the king is risen, meaning the king is here. And so from uh, the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts, the shift is the kingdom is near to the kingdom is now. And this is what we preach. We preach a now kingdom. Now, if you're concerned about the delay between these things, 2 Peter 3.9 makes clear why this is the case. 2 Peter 3.9, lovely verse. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Isn't that nice? Have you ever wondered, like, why did Jesus delay for 2,000 years? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you and for your kids and for your kids' kids. He doesn't want to lose anybody. And so the delay is a reprieve for the sake of repentance. That's good news. The judgment has come. It's landed on King Jesus, and now we've received a reprieve. I like it. So God's judgment of the earth, promised in the Bible, is still coming. And what nobody predicted at the time was that God himself and the person of his son would pay the penalty for his people. And so in Christ, it's the case that judgment and salvation have both been made clear. So what do we do with this information? Uh, what do we do when we witness signs like the pouring out of the Spirit, the darkening of the sun? What do we do when the resurrection happens in our midst? What do we do when, people, when we believe in the judgment promised by Joel, but it's shown to us that these things are happening now? Well, the right response, according to Joel, is to repent. And this, if you remember from Peter's sermon, is exactly what his hearers do at the close. They repent. They're cut to the quick, which is the exact response required from obedient Israelites. And you know what? It's our right response, too. To repent, to be cut to the quick, to turn back to God. Uh, some of you are hungry for restoration in the Lord, but you've not supplied repentance. Some of you are hungry for new life, but you're not supplying repentance, a turning away from the old. Some of you are eager for the Lord to restore the locusts of Eden in your life, but you have no repentance to bring to that. Some of you really want God to move mightily in your life, in your marriages, in your schoolwork, in your careers, but you have no repentance. And what he asks of you is a torn heart. Not torn clothes, not the outward sign. He wants it deep inside you. I'm reminded of two scriptures in this, which is one is Isaiah 1.18. I love this verse. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Come, let's have a discussion. We'll sort things out together. It's not a repentance of you flogging yourself and beating yourself up. It's showing up with, to God with what you've got in hand and saying, is it, Lord? I'd like to be made right. And he always says, let's do it. He's eager to come alongside you. The second is 2 Chronicles 7. The chronicler writes, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, that's great, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. That repentance is tied to the pouring out of the Spirit like rain on thirsty land, 
to be restored, to be filled, to be made new. So brothers and sisters, the end is not near, it's here. Repent, be healed, be restored, and let God's Spirit fill you freshly today. And now we're entering into a time of prayer uh, where I'm going to invite you, if you're moved, to come forward, to be prayed for, to receive from God today. And like I said at the very beginning, and I wrote it down before I preached, let the Lord seal the work He is doing in you today. Seal you in repentance, seal you in His Spirit. Uh, If you come forward, uh, members of our home groups will pray for you. They'll come forward, they'll lay hands on you, they'll ask you what's going on. Invite you to let God do His work. Would you please stand? And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Do your work. Do the work that only you can do. Amen.